I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, former Imagineer Melissa Roan Paris, to the show. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Well, thank you, Tammy. I appreciate that. It's great to finally talk to you on the phone because, or Skype, um, because, you know, we, a couple months ago, I think it was like almost two, one month ago, I, I had obtained some of these wonderful photos from Jane Jackson, who worked on the American Adventure. And she had these wonderful pictures of individuals who actually posed for the Spirits of America statues that everybody sees when they come into the American Adventure Theater. And one of them is you. But before we jump in on what your what, what your work has been for Imagineering, I thought we would talk about your beginnings going into working for the Disney company, because it sounds like you first started out in Disneyland. So can you tell me a little bit about how you obtained that job at Disneyland? I did. I I was a cast member. Um, and actually, the story of Disney and, and me goes a lot further back than that. I first went to Disneyland in August of 1955, the month after it opened, because we had moved from Pennsylvania and and my great aunt had sent my parents money to take me to Disneyland because I loved Disney and I loved Davy Crockett and I missed my cousins, so they wanted me to go to Disneyland. So I had an ongoing relationship in my head with Walt Disney and Disneyland. So later in life, um, I was a graduate student at California State University in Long Beach. My husband was in dental school at UCLA. You can imagine we're extremely short of money. So there was an advertisement in the um, newspaper at my university that Disneyland was looking for seasonal cast members for the winter holiday season. So I thought, well, okay, you know, I'm going to be not working at school because I was the graduate assistant in my department. So I might as well go and apply. That would be fun. Not really thinking about what I was going to do. My sister worked at Disneyland. My sister was a ride operator and later was an intern for Van France. And um, I thought, oh, you know, that would be fun. I could go, I could, maybe I could be a ride operator. And I didn't think about the fact that as an undergraduate, I had worked part-time at a bank. So they offered me a position in cash control. You can imagine that the volume of cash that moves through Disneyland, even in the middle to late 1970s, is tremendous. So cash control was a constant barrage of counting money. And we would have to go out into the park to collect the money at drop sites. Um, There were drop sites behind all the major retail areas and um, restaurants and they were double locked. The manager there would have a a key and we would have a key. So we would have to walk across the park, but we were the only cast members permitted to not, to to actually deflect a guest if we were asked to take somebody's picture or something because you don't wanna stop when you know you're carrying in your sort of anonymous big brown bag thousands of dollars. 
So we would always use our very distinctive two finger Disney hand gesture to say, I'm sorry, I cannot help you, but I'm sure that cast member over there would be more than happy to do so. At the same time, our anonymity was rather difficult to maintain because it was the era of double knit and our cast member costumes, at least for the women, were a bright gold tunic length vest, a white blouse with three quarter sleeves and gold double knit pants, which made us kind of a walking ray of sunshine going across the park in our bright gold. It was fun. Um, sometimes I get to drive over to the Heidi Motel, which was the beginning of the acquisitions um, along Catella uh, to expand what later became California Adventure. Um, sometimes I get to take the monorail over to Disney, uh, to the Disneyland Hotel, not because we picked up money from there, but because there was actually an arcade over there. And I'd have to go clean out the, crawl out on the floor and clean out the quarters from, from the arcade games. And uh, so I did all of that while I was in graduate school. When I graduated, I got a master's in economics. Uh, the Disneyland line, which liked and probably still does to do cast member features, um, did an article about how I had gotten my master's degree in, uh, in economics which apparently made its way to Imagineering. And um, I was contacted to come in for an interview. So that, that was how I started. I started at Disneyland in cash control. Oh my gosh. So you, you were contacted by Imagineering specifically because of, of that. So who, who did you get to do an interview with? Anybody that we might know? Frank Stanick, if you don't know who Frank Stanick is, he kind of coordinated uh, a lot of the business aspects of um, in Epcot initially and then uh, TDL. So I worked for Frank Stanick and then Pat Scanland. The American Adventure was probably the one that I started with aside from odds and ends of economic kinds of research and continued with uh, up until the park opened. Um, simply because with the American Adventure and the fact that it was portraying actual history, everything needed to be researched and or if somebody else had found it, it needed to be vetted to be accurate as accurate. So when I go see the show now, I can sit there and, and go, yeah, that and that and that and that and that are all things that in some way I touched either uh, props or dialogue or even vocal qualities. I went with um, Rick Rothschild, who was the producer. He and I went to um, San Francisco to do some, some research and some archives, some newspaper archives, looking for contemporary articles about Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain's speaking tours, and to see what the reporters had to say about the nature of his speeches and to see if there's anything we could pull from that about his um, speaking voice, his intonation, his method of presentation um, to better reflect the true Mark Twain and how he spoke 
um, in the show. And as a senior research analyst, which was your official title on the American Adventure, I can't even imagine. So for me, when I do research for my interviews, it's like a hop, skip and a jump because it's Google. So you just describing having to actually go to a location just to get news newspaper clippings as today we could just look it up and most of it is in archives online digitally so this must have been extremely hard I can't even like my mind is kind of blowing right now because I'm I'm just thinking it must have been so difficult to kind of obtain as much information and fact check it which I, I find very noble that you guys actually wanted to make sure it was as accurate as possible especially for a show that's only like 30 to 40 minutes long and can only cram so much in- information about history. So what was the first year that you began work on this prior to it, it opening back in 1982? Oh, the very end of 77 or beginning of 78. And then it opened in 82. And there was no internet. That is true. So that wasn't the only trip that I took. I, I also went and spent a week in Washington, D.C. with a couple of guys. Um, they worked for Van France doing photography and things. And we were looking for a wide variety of things. Um, a lot of material for Great Bird. So reference material, so the artists could create the the montage of of historical paintings that went behind Great Bird, and um, traveling as a Disney employee was always always um, a wonderful experience because I made our reservation. I didn't make our travel reservations. Of course, that was done by Disney travel, but I made our reservations at our research sites in advance. And we went to the national archives and we went to library of Congress. We went to NASA and we went to the Pentagon. And, you know, when you say that you're coming from Disney and why you're looking for information, um, doors open and it's wonderful. So the National Archives, we were looking for um, picture references for the artists to use, and which meant we got to go like in the in the very back archives. And as I said, pre-internet. So as I was going through the catalog um, of their picture photographic collection um, and and pulling up topics, and we were talking about what it uh, what it, we thought would be appropriate, and then we would give the librarian um, the references we were looking for. And they would bring out collections of photographs in pasteboard boxes, like cardboard boxes. They weren't just normal cardboard boxes. They were the acid-free archival boxes. But nevertheless, they were in pasteboard boxes as opposed to digital photographs that we would go through and you know pick out the ones that we would like to have copied. So, and then I... I, I I still maintain that all of the furniture back there was probably from the administration of Rutherford B. Hayes, because I don't think that I, th- I think they spent their money on their collection, not on replacing furniture that may be Victorian, but was perfectly adequate. And then we went to the Library of Congress, did a very similar kind of research. Um, NASA, NASA was awesome. They were so excited to have us there. Because NASA is always looking for, or at least at that time, was looking for exposure. And 
we actually were given um, first generation copies of the Hasselblad negatives of the moon landing photos, which um, the guys that I was with took back to Disneyland and they made prints. Well, they made reference prints for the artist and they made prints for them and they made prints for me. So I have prints of, of all of the moon landing um, photographs that the, that the astronauts had taken from the, uh, the Armstrong, the Neil Armstrong moon landing. And then we went to the Pentagon and you may be aware that the Pentagon is one of the largest buildings in terms of square foot footage in the entire world. So when we checked in at the front desk, we were provided with a, a military escort to the Pentagon library and you know, then we, we were doing our photographic research there. The librarian was very helpful. And then when we finished, we said, okay, well, we've got, you know, everything I think we've come for, we're ready to go. And she, and the librarian said, oh, okay, well, bye. And we looked at each other and thought, oh no, how will we find our way out? Which obviously we did because here I am at home, but it was uh, an adventure meandering out through the halls of the Pentagon without, you know, crossing some invisible barrier where we ought not to be um, to make our way out. So the other thing I got to do on that trip was actually read um, a, a copy from the Library of Congress of Thomas Jefferson's journal that he kept when he was living in Philadelphia and was and during the time he was writing um, the Declaration of Independence. And in his journal, what he kept track of primarily was expenses and things. I mean, he was trying to, you know, keep his income and his outgo as balanced as possible, given that he didn't normally worry about those things. But um, during the time that he was writing the Declaration of Independence, his journal indicated he bought sugar cookies. So if you watch the show and in the scene where he is sitting in his desk and, and Ben Franklin is walking up the stairs, there is a little plate somewhere nearby with cookies on it because we documented that. If you know where to look and you're willing to ask, um, particularly historical research, you can find just about anything um, at the Pentagon. I knew we were doing a scene about the Second World War and they had determined that the scene was going to be Rosie the Riveter in a shipyard. And they wanted it to be a submarine that she was working on. So the show, as you see it now, there, there's, you know, the submarine that Rosie and Jane are working on. And then you see other ships in dry dock in the back for practicality's sake. They wanted the superstructure of the submarine to be as simple as possible because not only were they going to have to build it, but, you know, it had to be on the rising set and it had to be stored under um, where the audience is seated. So um, in my research at the Pentagon, I discovered that there were actually World War I submarines, which were much simpler in superstructure than World War II submarines that were used um, to patrol the Caribbean and as training vessels. Um, so we were able to use those. And off the top of my head, 
I mean, I could look because I still have the information about exactly what they were, but off the top of my head, I can't tell you what they were. But, uh, and then they wanted to know, should they, should, should it have an identification number on it? So I also discovered that after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the Navy not only removed the identification markings from all of their ships, but they went back and airbrushed it out of um, public photos. You'll see no identification on the submarine. You do see identification on the battleships behind because they are in dry dock to have their identification removed. What was the most surprising thing that you found during research for the show? Um, Well, this sounds really silly, but... I found that if you have to do research in an archive of 1920s look, life, and post magazines, the dust is incredible. Was was there anything specifically that you would have loved to have kept in the show that maybe didn't make it? Maybe a specific type of prop or specific line? Um. No, but there was a prop that for a while disappeared. And um, I I had left the company by then, but I saw it going back as a tourist. And I said, where the heck is it? And so I, uh, I contacted an imaginary friend of mine who was still working at the company and had a little meltdown and said, it's not there. So he, uh, he worked his magic and they got another one. There is um, when Ben Franklin and um, Sam Clemens are are talking at the table. There's supposed to be a, a teapot on the table that says no taxes. And that's a that is a reflection of a teapot that really exists in a museum from the time frame of the Revolutionary War. And apparently the teapot got broken. So somebody thought they could just put a plain old teapot there until I saw it. (laughs) And now apparently the the no taxes teapot is back. Ooh, I'm going to have to bring my camera next time and zoom in, (laughs) get a nice shot of it. Or maybe one of our listeners can. That would be fantastic. So, So let's go back to the day. To make a long story short, Jane Jackson, who had previously been on our show and also worked on the American Adventure, found copies of the photos of modeling that some of the Imagineers, including Jane and Melissa, were involved in to have for the Spirits of America, just for cross-reference. So can you talk me through that day? Do you remember it? And why were you chosen to be the spirit that you were? What actually prompted Jane to look for the photographs was um, an article I did for a newsletter, we have a, a an Imagineering group, uh, and we have a newsletter. And I, I was doing an article on Imagineers in the American Adventure, and they are there are many of them, and they are everywhere. But I didn't have names for everybody who posed for the statues. I just knew a few. And Jane knew she had the reference photos. The people that that that. Uh, Pose for the statues are from a wide range. They didn't all work on the American Adventure. Um, for example, Frank Armitage, who's the mountain man, not only there, but also in the show, there's a background painting of a mountain man on a horse. 
That's Frank, too. He posed because he looked the part. And um, Jane was, the at the time, the PICO coordinator and later became the coordinator for the pavilion. Um, I worked in the pavilion as the research analyst. The reason they had me pose for the Native American woman is because my grandmother's mother is Mohawk. And so I at least had some connection. We, we're costume models. We're, we're not ostensibly necessarily the face of that um, of that uh, particular statue, although the statue did end up looking like me. That was how I ended up being asked to pose for that particular statue. And the process of posing, Jane had gone with the art directors that were working on the show to Western Costume. And they picked out the costumes they wanted for all of um, the costume models for the statues. And I got a very heavy buckskin dress and a cradle board. And they strapped 10 pounds of sand on the cradle board. So my posture would be correct as if I were carrying an infant. And then in the model shop, they had a almost like a lazy Susan that you stand on. And they didn't sculpt from life what they did. They had the photographer in there. And the photographer took the frontal shots, which is what Jane found. But then, you know, they pivoted us on the Lazy Susan and took shots all the way around, which were the sculptural references. And Blaine Gibson was there. He was such a nice guy. He was such a nice man. I was talking about what he wanted and, you know, what, which direction he wanted me to look and what he wanted me to do with my hands and um, it was really a pretty awesome experience knowing that, you know, Blaine had sculpted presidents and pirates and who knows who all else. And he was going to sculpt me. <laughs> it's like, oh, I feel special. But one of my son's best friends, who is um, a Disney cast member, Blue Badge. So he came to meet us, my sister and I, at the American Adventure so I could take him on a tour of all of the paintings outside and what I remembered about the artists and what they were doing. And we sat in the back of the audience where we wouldn't disturb anybody so I could talk to him about the props and the paintings and everything on the show. And uh, so I had the cast members who were working the show come up and talk to me afterwards. And and they were saying, oh, you know, people ask, is this Pocahontas? Is this Sacagawea? And I looked at him and said, Nope, it's just me. <laughs> so that, that was a fun time. That was a fun time to be able to do that. When I had Randy Wright's children on the show, um, I was trying to do as much information research as possible. And um, I thought it was so interesting that he he was so dedicated to making sure the accuracy was on point. And obviously, you, you're confirming almost everything that everybody was working 110% to make this the best that they could. And I think one of his main concerns and one of the things he was a little bit sad about was he couldn't fit everything in a show. And sometimes yeah. I feel like that's unfair criticism to the show because, yeah, how are you going to fit 200 years in a show, right? Well, you not only can't fit 200 years, you can't fit any more sets under the audience. 
But, you know, he tried really hard and he was very generous, but he handed me the, um, the submarine sequence and said, here, give it a try. He said, if we don't use it, that's okay. But, you know, you can at least try. So I did. They didn't use it, but he, but he gave me the opportunity. So I always, I always liked Randy a lot. Randy was a kind, generous, thoughtful man. So the people I got to know well either had offices in my corridor. I was actually at the corner of two corridors. So I knew people in show set design um, largely or some people in, or of course my colleagues in research or um, they were the old guys. Um, I knew Herbie Ryman really well, um, Claude Coates, um, Peter Ellenshaw, mostly because when I would find myself with some spare time, I would go, I called it going walkabout, and I would just wander around to their offices to see if they needed anything, if I could go find them some, some picture references or, or something. So um, I knew all those guys really well. John Hench, who was also very kind, used to let my husband and I go to Club 33 on his membership. We'd, we'd go and have Sunday brunch. And it was always fun to walk in and, you know, there in your reservation, it's John Hinch's membership. So it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know John. Actually, I know his secretary even better, but, you know. <laughs> what about actually the recording sessions for vocal matches? I, I did interview one individual, um, Trish, who was the voice of Susan B. Anthony. And apparently... From what she knew, there wasn't really any uh, any recordings that Susan had had, <laughs> any recordings of Susan talking. So how are you guys matching, as best you can, vocals that you really couldn't hear or they never were recorded and vice versa? Well, the only ones, the only one we specifically researched was Mark Twain because we knew from his lecture tours that there was reference material. We also knew that Alexander Graham Bell and Andrew Carnegie were Scottish. Um, beyond that, we went just mostly with kind of age-related voice choices um, because we couldn't research, for example, Susan B. Anthony. But we did know that by the time she was active in, in the cause of women's suffrage, she was a mature woman. So you wouldn't want someone with a childish voice. So that kind of made those determinations. So when the attraction opened, what 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 were you hearing from from visitors? What was the overall consensus of people after they saw it, and and what were your thoughts? Well, I I actually was on maternity leave, and I came back to wed the day of the opening because we had a big party, and uh, then I went back on maternity leave. So what I was reading what was what everybody else was, was seeing or reading in the news, um, which was, you know, kind of glowing evaluation of this new form of edutainment. Um, and, uh, when I went back from my maternity leave, you know, we still needed to open uh, Tokyo Disneyland and I had long moved past Epcot because I had nothing to do with the construction. I was just doing research kinds of things. So I was uh, working mostly on economic reports when I came back. 
And then it wasn't long after that, um, after TDL opened, that they had the layoffs. And I went home and stayed with my children for 15 years. So I was not there for that kind of, of reaction. I think, I think Randy, Randy really did a, a good job trying to balance out the positive and the negative, you know, with Chief Joseph. Um, there are certainly issues he chose not to specifically address, but to allude to. Um, the Civil War and and the issue of slavery in the Civil War. But then again, the Civil Rights Movement, um, Martin Luther King actually has a speaking part equivalent to the moon landing. Um, Randy wanted to, you know, address not just what shapes us in a celebratory manner, but what shapes us in a reflective manner. Well, I... I know we only scratched the surface of what you have done for Disney, and I really appreciate you being able to answer my random message saying, hey, um, Lissa, were you one of the spirits of America? <laughs> because I was, you know, it was just fascinating to see who was still around. And as a kid, you know, the show was so in- so inspiring for me and to be able to speak to you today is just pretty mind-blowing again (laughs) for me (laughs) so this has been so much fun and to end i have three disney themed questions i ask each of my guests so we'll start with the donald one um as a child what disney film was one of your favorites to see in the movie theater sleeping beauty and our goofy question, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? Minnie Mouse. And our Mickey question, if I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind? Chim Chimini. And your kitty agrees. He <laughs> does. He does. Oh my gosh, Melissa, this has been this has been such a pleasure. And I hope maybe they might be able, Disney might be able to reunite all the spirits of America. I know some of them have unfortunately passed, but to to see maybe a, a small reunion for some of you, like you and Jane and the rest would be really cool. <laughs> <laughs> After well, all these years. <laughs> Maybe maybe uh, when reunions are possible. We'll hope for the best, but thank you so much for being on the show. This has been such such fun. Well, thank you, Tammy. I I appreciate this. It's it's fun to relive old memories. may be brothers we're the one country around us and one government for all